The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 26th. Today, the Post investigates electric scooters. President Trump makes a surprise visit to Iraq, and a Kentucky town revisits its greatest defeat. So all we got to do is press the little button that says start ride. Then we scan the scooter's QR code and it magically starts. That's Peter Hawley. He's a tech reporter for The Post. And he's standing outside our building in downtown D.C. showing me how to rent an e-scooter. It says ride started. You press OK. So now I'm being charged money. And there's a little timer in the app that shows how long I've been riding. Uh, it starts, it costs $1 to start the scooter and at 15 cents per minute from here on out. This scooter is the kind that you stand up on. And it's owned by a company called Skip. It's one of the big ones along with Bird and Lime. And they're all fueled by new venture capital money from even bigger companies like Uber and Google, which is why it seems like the e-scooter craze has exploded from out of nowhere. Because there's like two right by here. Yeah. And then when you zoom out, like all of a sudden, they're they're literally like a hundred. There's hundreds or maybe even more than a hundred. They're all over the place. These rechargeable scooters, they're being hailed as a game changer for urban transportation. And they go pretty fast, so you can cover a couple miles in just a few minutes. You can leave it anywhere, anywhere on the sidewalk, for someone else to come and pick up. It's very convenient. It's very easy. The only trick now is staying alive. Peter has been working on a series of stories about the inner workings of these electric scooter companies, about their practices, and how, or if, they're regulated at all. It's an investigation that weirdly started with his own commute. I kind of became obsessed with them just as a customer. So you actually ride them? I ride them every day. I almost have like an unnatural obsession with finding them. It's like a nervous tick almost. For him, it's way faster than waiting for the subway and way cheaper than an Uber. And then I got an email a couple months into riding them, maybe two months into riding them. Who who sent you this email? Uh, Skip, one of the major companies based out of San Francisco. And it was one of those form emails that you usually ignore about the user agreement and the terms of service. Skip is growing and expanding. So we're updating our terms of service, our privacy policy, and our release. We've also added a class action waiver, which precludes class action. What does that tell you? I think, well, actually what it told me was that they were changing their terms of service. They they had terms of service that allowed you to file a lawsuit, but then suddenly they decided to change them. And so that just made me curious, like, why would you change so that I couldn't file a lawsuit? So I read the, the small print and was like, that's unusual. Like, why would you change terms of service several months into the product being on the street? That got me curious. And then I began to wonder, well, maybe it's because of injuries. Like, maybe these companies have started worrying about getting sued by people who've gotten hurt while riding. And Peter starts looking for reports of serious scooter injuries. And they were everywhere. And the injuries were really bad. There were severe injuries, like people landing on their faces, getting knocked out, uh, people having severe long-term head injuries. And so once I had noticed that was going on, then I began calling emergency room doctors and saying, hey, are you guys seeing this as well? And they all were like, yes, uniformly they were seeing this. 
That was true of ER doctors in San Francisco, L.A., San Diego. Miami, Nashville, D.C., Austin. And they were telling Peter that what they were seeing from e-scooters was very different from what they'd seen when bikes and bike share programs started to get more popular. Actually, they were saying it was worse. It was They were comparing him to moped, motorcycle, and older car accidents because it turns out cars have gotten so much safer that they don't even see injuries on par with what's being produced on scooters on a regular basis. The question is, why? You could blame it on the basic physics of the scooters themselves. Small wheels aren't good at shock absorbing. You're standing up, so it's hard to brace yourself when there's a bump. But that's not the whole story. So let's say you're on a scooter, you're moving quickly, you're doing everything right, but then when you go to press the brake, it doesn't work, and you're moving towards oncoming traffic. Wait, you go to press the brake and it doesn't work? This happens really frequently. Uh, Brakes don't work. Accelerators get stuck. I've had this happen to me personally, but I've also interviewed lots of people who've had this happen. Things break down constantly on these things, probably daily. That's crazy. Yeah, and it's really common. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually see videos of mechanics discussing how frequently they find scooters with brakes that don't work. I just signed up to be a bird mechanic. mechanic. The handlebars would be loose. The brakes wouldn't Uh, work. Scooters with problems. See how this scooter goes all the way down? That means that the brakes are loose. They don't have the full braking power. And the reason is because the brakes get loosened because people of different weights are using them to go downhill or something and the brakes kind of get loosened and they probably need upkeep every day or so. Who Who is doing this maintenance work and how is that being tracked by the companies? Um, it depends on the company. Most companies rely on an unskilled workforce that they do some training on. Uh, These are like gig economy employees. Oftentimes they're young people or people who don't have jobs otherwise, but they're not highly trained. And I think that's safe to say across the industry. So for Bird, for example, you can go on Craigslist and see ads for them looking for mechanics and they don't require experience and they'll train you using YouTube videos. These are videos that are shared by the company. All right, today we're going to demonstrate replacing the brake caliper assembly. You're going to start by so you have some guy in his apartment who's never done any kind of mechanic work at all in the past watching YouTube videos, and then he's going to be doing maintenance on your scooter that you're going to be riding to work the next day. So they're literally like, it doesn't really matter if you're a professional mechanic or not. Just like take our scooters, use this YouTube video, fix them to the best of your ability. We'll give you some money and put it back on the road, and we're not going to test them to make sure that they're working properly. Well, the, the mechanics are supposed to test them to an extent before they put them back on the road, but there's not but a the lot of... the company mecha- itself isn't The testing company them. itself is not testing them. There's not a rigorous testing process. And the same is true in uh, across the industry for, for Lyme. I think Skip's maintenance program is more robust, but it's safe to say that when you get on a scooter, if it's a bird or a Lyme, you don't really know what you're getting. So you talk to these companies and say, like, Clearly, there's an issue here. If there are all these documented malfunctions of the e-scooters, what did they have to say? They say that maintenance and safety is, is their top priority, which is strange because it doesn't seem like it is. Peter wrote a story about this, about the experiences of injured riders and the concerns from ER doctors and the lack of safeguards to ensure that random freelancers who are doing repairs are actually doing them right. But Peter also knew that he hadn't gotten to the heart of the story. He needed to talk to people on the inside, people who actually worked for these companies. The question was, how was he going to find them? And then he had this idea. I had been doing this thing where at night I would grab the scooters off the street and I would take them to my apartment 
and I'd wait until 9 p.m. had passed, and I'd put it out on the street, and after a few minutes, you'd hear the, the scooter would start beeping because somebody was looking for it, one of the chargers, or they're, they're known as juicers. So, and then a juicer would show up, and then wait, I would... So, so you'd be, like, sitting in, like, the front room of your apartment, just, like, waiting for these waiting. people to show up to your house? Yeah, it was like, it was like when people want to study sharks, they throw chum into the water. So I was just sort of chumming with scooters, and then people would show up, chargers, and I'd start conversations with them. And so I knew from that, from those conversations, that these things are really dangerous. Somebody told me pretty early on, like, yeah, we have a maintenance department, but it's mostly a bunch of guys sitting around a table smoking pot. But I don't know if that's the best way to be uh, in charge of people's safety. For the record, at the time, a Lime spokesperson told Peter, that's not something that happens at this company. So I knew that things were going wrong with the scooters. And then when I was doing the stories, I was waiting for somebody within one of these warehouses to reach out to me to talk. And that's exactly what happened. In October, Peter opens up his email and gets this message. Mr. Holly, I recently read your article on September 6 regarding scooter usage and thought you really hit on something I haven't seen in many stories I've read this summer about scooter danger. I work as a mechanic for Lime in California. One of the company's scooters started on fire in a warehouse in late August. And had there not been someone there, the whole building probably would have burned down. This person was saying that many of the lithium-ion batteries in Lime scooters were not properly installed, and they were prone to suddenly catching on fire. We've been told by management not to say anything to other employees, the landlord, customers, and most importantly, to the juicers. And this person had a whole lot of other information, too, about scooter defects and concerns from Lime's own staff mechanics, and the fact that riders weren't being informed of any of these problems. We repair these things daily, and they're made of the cheapest parts with no regard to longevity or safety. Most important, this person had evidence. Screenshots from Lime's app. Internal communications. Photos. I have pictures of the burned scooter. There are other employees who may be willing to talk. It was exactly what Peter had been looking for. These are a fire and explosion hazard. Let me know if this story is one you'd like to pursue or if I should inquire elsewhere. Thank you for your time. It took a while for Peter to corroborate everything. He actually flew out to California to meet this guy in person, to check out his company pay stubs and make sure that he was legit. And he used a report from a small fire department near a lime warehouse to prove that the scooter fires were real. In the end, Peter was able to publish a story with several big takeaways. Not only were some of Lime's scooters prone to fire, but the company was aware of it. They were quietly conducting a massive recall, and they weren't telling customers about it until Peter started asking. For what it's worth, Lime blamed the battery defect on the scooter's manufacturer and not on their own maintenance practices. They also said that they removed the scooters out of an abundance of caution. But, quote, at no time were riders or members of the public put at risk. That was back in October. Since then, Peters broke another news about riders and pedestrians who filed class action lawsuits against scooter companies and about models of scooters that are known to break into two pieces while people are riding. That led to a global recall a day later. It actually shut down a lot of scooter riding in Paris, for example. Like, you couldn't find a Lime scooter on the streets of Paris because they had so many of these dangerous scooters. These stories have brought to light big questions about how these companies do business and how they're monitored or regulated. Because just like when Uber and Lyft first became popular, e-scooters have spread through cities so fast Governments are struggling to keep up in making sure that they're actually safe. I think some cities are getting hip to the game and they're actually demanding things of scooter companies. 
Others are actually refusing to let scooter companies in. Seattle's mayor recently said, we're not going to do this because of the injuries. But the scooter companies, they say, if you talk to them off the record, they say there was no other way any of this would ever happen. We could never have spread across the country and we could never prove in this business model unless we, you know, essentially broke the rules. Has reporting on all of these problems made you rethink using this as your daily commuting mode? I don't, not quite. And it could be because I'm ridiculous, but... I think despite all the issues, they're really legitimately filling in a need that a lot of people have. There's something really important about these scooters that could actually change the way our cities operate. And I think it's undeniable once you start riding them. And I think it's going to take successive generations of scooters and stories like the ones I've been doing to force these companies to begin thinking more intelligently about how their customers are being treated. A lot has happened over the last week. It was the worst stock market plunge in Christmas Eve history. The Secretary of Defense made an abrupt exit, and the government is partially shut down. And now, President Trump is on a surprise visit to Iraq. You know, we knew he wanted to go to a war zone at some time around the holidays, and there had been all sorts of rumors that maybe it would happen this Christmas. Uh, But I did not uh, expect this would happen today and until the news broke. Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post, and he says that this is a significant moment for the president. It's a big trip. It's the first time Donald Trump as president has gone to a war zone, and he's waited two years to do it. Remember, he did and he's not— he's gotten a lot of flack for, for not he going He has. Earlier. He's gotten criticized for this. He, uh, remember, did not serve in the Vietnam War. He, he got deferments from that war because of alleged bone spurs. And he's, you know, met with troops. He, he makes veterans a key part of his political coalition, but he's not actually gone to a war zone and sort of endured the dangers that are associated with that— Do we know what he's doing there? So after touching down in Iraq and and meeting with troops, President Trump talked to reporters there on the ground who are traveling with him, and he defended his decision about Syria. He said he thinks a lot of people are going to come around to his point of view, which is that that is a war America should not be fighting. Uh, You know, a lot of Trump's critics say he's America's deserting our allies in Syria, that we're going to let the Kurds be defeated there. And, And Trump is saying, no, no, it's not so bad. It's time for us to get our head on straight pull out of Syria, and the rest of the world is going to come around to my point of view. He's accompanied, by the way, uh, by First Lady Melania Trump, and that is unusual. First ladies usually don't go into war zones like this. So she's joined him, and Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, said that the president just wanted to go and extend Christmas greetings uh, to military service members. But why is he going there now? Well, this comes at a time of tremendous turmoil and upheaval at the Pentagon, not only because of personnel. Uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis resigned last week and is being pushed out early by Trump, but also because of the president's decisions both to uh, withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria, as well as a, a decision that he made to his advisors that he wanted to start drawing down the troop presence in Afghanistan. That is America's longest serving war. It's been going for 17 years now. Trump has been a critic of that war and is pulling back troops. Both of those decisions are opposed by uh, many members of his national security team, are, are have been widely condemned by the sort of uh, America's national security establishment, if it were, and, and drawn criticism from allies, including France. And so I think he's 
trying to reassert personal ownership over the military's mission, trying as commander-in-chief to go into a war zone and take control of the public relations component here. But also it's notable that he's going to Iraq at a time when there's a lot that's happening here in D.C. in the White House oh my that goodness. is bad I know. news. Well, he's he's escaping the government shutdown in Washington. That's why he's been holed up at the White House to begin with, because the government uh, had a, has had a, a partial uh, shutdown over a stalemate, a spending stalemate, an inability by Trump and the Democrats to find agreement uh, about funding the government into the new year because of Trump's demands for money for his border wall along the border in Mexico. So that's going Going on. There's all sorts of political and legal pressures that the president is facing elsewhere, including the Russia investigation, including uh, the Democrats taking over the House on January 3rd. But he's escaping all of that. And, and this is a big moment where he reminds us that he is the commander in chief. And, and for all the controversies here in Washington, he leads our military um, all around the world. And, and he's with the troops right now. So while President Trump is in Iraq defending his decision to pull out of Syria, right now we still have the shutdown. Do we know how long that's going to continue for and what is going to happen next? Oh, my goodness. I wish I could guess. Uh, You know, the shutdown could end in a day or two because Congress returns on Thursday uh, to resume legislative business and and presumably pick up negotiations. However, uh, the president is so far away from the Democrats right now in terms of an agreement over border security funding that I don't think they're going to come to any sort of accord easily. And the shutdown very well may continue into next week. January 3rd is the key date on the calendar. That's when Nancy Pelosi becomes the Speaker of the House and Democrats have their majority. And that could shift the environment in Washington that could enable a spending bill to pass with a veto-proof majority potentially. It also could bring Trump to the table to some sort of agreement. But I think we're looking at a closure of the government for several days to come. Thank you so much, Phil. Glad to be here. And before we go, one more thing. Well, it's Cardinal Stadium, folks. The state finals, something that a team strives for their entire high school career is to make it here. Back in December 1993, sports writer Chuck Culpepper covered a Kentucky high school football team and the final game of their state championships. The game happened in the late afternoon, as I recall, in the rain between Mayfield from way out west and then the other side, Prestonsburg from eastern Kentucky from the mountains. The tradition of countless squads culminating in the 1993 Black Cat team. Soldiers of the gridiron. It's been 25 years, and Chuck still hasn't been able to forget that game. Prestonsburg, a coal town in the mountains, used to getting sneered at by the cities, had their hopes pinned to this championship and to the team, the Black Cats. Black Cats on the field right now, warming up, and uh, they certainly have uh, a, a championship and the ring in sight. If they won the state finals, they would have proven to themselves and to all of Kentucky that they weren't some defeated, washed-up town. The Cats can smell victory. We're 8.32 away from a big, big win. In that 1993 game, Prestonsburg got so close to winning. They were up 12-0 against Mayfield until the fourth quarter. Through this series of plays that happened really from the 8.32 mark of the fourth quarter until the end, Prestonsburg kept having 
either errors happen or matters of fate which were unkind happen. The final score, Prestonsburg 12. Their rival, Mayfield, 13. Chuck went back to Prestonsburg this winter to report on that coal town and their beloved football team. In conversations there with people, you know, some of our conversations veered to the, the whole idea of the coal mines closing and, you know, what effect that has had. And what he found was that he wasn't the only one who was still haunted by that football game. And now in visiting it again, I'm finding when you lose 13 to 12, the human brain has trouble sorting it out. And I think the players, they've had three of their teammates die, two in motorcycle accidents, one in Wyoming, one in Thailand. A junior linebacker passed away in May of 2017, you know, as a, another of the casualties from the opioid epidemic. Kyle Fitzpatrick is a magnificent lineman, a two-way starter. This past March, he was indicted on uh, charges of trafficking methamphetamine, and he is in a detention center in Grayson County, Kentucky. Seth Hyden was one of the stars of the team. He was a running back and a defensive back. So he still keeps this video on his phone, and his wife still, she said, still catches him now and then in his office, in his dental office, just looking at that game. Since 1993, the Prestonsburg Black Hats have only been back to the state finals once. They lost that game 47-16. to 16. That's it for Post Reports. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us on your favorite podcast app. Or you can tweet at us by using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.